Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much once again for just the privilege of opening up your word this time as it pertains specifically to marriage and family and Lord, the helpful principles that you have outlined in your word so that we would glorify you as we live out your divine design and so that we might uh, be people who are uh, experiencing your blessing and your good gifts. When we follow your divine design, we are blessed. And so, Father, we want to continue to be people who embrace your truth as revealed in your word. Father, I pray that this would be a helpful time to my brethren, that it may be a time that is fruitful as we open up God's word together and even really delve into some of the implications, some of the takeaways from your wonderful word and your design for marriage and for family. We ask for your blessing upon our time in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, brethren. All right, so this is session two. Okay, last week was session one of this workshop that we're doing, this equipping class. I call it Marriage 101, Back to the Basics. And if you remember last week, we, we uh, discussed a little bit of the crises that we're facing in our world, especially in our country with regards to marriage and the strain from uh, God's design for the family, in particular for us as married couples, and obviously the repercussions that come from that, right? The consequences that come from not following after God's Word. So we call that the, the crises that is marriage, that the family and marriage in particular is under siege. And we considered the fact that even though in the world, obviously there's a lot of uh, bad stuff happening, that stuff infiltrates the church, right? The church is not um, immune to the issues that are going on in our society. So I gave you some statistics, um, but some of those statistics are very close to even some that we might be able to come up uh, for the church. And uh, I could just tell you that over the years, the most common counseling uh, problems that I'll get um, in my years of pastoring are really marriage problems, okay? Couples not getting along, Couples wanting to break off their marriage and break the covenant that they have with one another that they made before the Lord. So those are the most common um, issues that a lot of pastors face. And so this is why we feel the need to, even uh, just as a revolving door kind of um, an approach, I think from time to time we need to return to these key issues in the in the Christian church, right? So that we might be re-solidified and recalibrated as far as our perspective of marriage and family and all of that. And um, I'll talk a little bit more about that later on, even in our pursuit of missional living um, and the way that we live out, live out God's principles as a family, okay? Um, what's the answer? What's the answer to these issues that we're facing and even to some of the statistics that we read last week? The answer is to return to the biblical foundation, amen? If the problem is such that there is so much disruption and destruction of marriages and all of that, I don't think that God has left us confused. I think there's, a, there's clarity as far as what the solution is. The solution to the problem, right, of broken marriages and broken families is that first and foremost we would return to the Word of God. And when we talk about the Bible and the Word of God, we're talking about God's best for us. Amen? God's best for our families. God's best for our our marriages. So the answer really is to submit to his divine design. And so that's what we did last week. Okay, we got into Genesis 1, especially chapter 2, for a little while. Obviously, we can't do that exhaustively. This is a four to six week class. Okay, and um, so I want to make sure that we stay, we honor that. 
and don't go two, three, four months. But we could do that, okay, given the critical nature of the issue, right? But we went into, we got into chapter two in particular in an effort to be reminded of what stands written. It doesn't matter what, what, how cultures change and the world around us changes. The Word of God stands written. And so we talked about what is God's design as our creator in creating man and woman and marriage and all of that. And so we didn't get into this last week. We want this morning to be focused on foundational principles of marriage. Okay? Foundational principles of marriage. I really want to dive into, last week we got into the text a little bit deeper. Uh, today, we're going to continue to do that. It's always going to be textually driven, exegetically driven, where we're drawing out principles from the Word of God. But I want to talk about takeaways. What are some foundational principles of marriage and takeaways from those texts that we saw last week? We're really answering the question in this session too, so what? Right? So what? If this is the Word of God and we saw some of those texts and um, exegeted some of those uh, words and phrases even, Talked about context a little bit. We're answering the question now, so what? Okay? It was a rapid speed look at those, those verses, but what principles and takeaways can we glean about marriage and family? Okay? I think, first of all, we need to never forget this, that marriage is a divinely created institution. It should go without saying, marriage is a God thing. Right? God initiated it and designed it Right? We saw this in the text. Look at all the action verbs, divine action verbs. Verse 21, so the Lord God, Yahweh God, caused his deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he, God, Yahweh God, took one of his ribs and, and implied, closed up the flesh at that place. God did that. Verse 22, the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and Yahweh God brought her to the man. Anytime that you study the Word of God, you need to you need to be uh, an observant of, of action verbs like that, right? Who is performing the action in these verbs? Yahweh God. This means the author is emphasizing Moses writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. This is not a mundane thing here, right? It's not a side issue. What he's emphasizing is God is the divine actor. He is the one who created marriage. It's a God thing. And that is super significant, brethren, right? Marriage is not a man-made human institution. So therefore, implication, man cannot do away with it, right? He cannot label it old-fashioned. He cannot label it outdated. He cannot say that it's a man-made tradition from ancient times, different from ours. Remember, what was Adam doing even when God um, performed the first marriage? What was he doing? Sleeping. He was knocked out, right? This is a God thing. So man cannot redefine marriage, right? God is boss. Think about that. With regards to marriage and how marriage is to be lived out and fleshed out in a broken, fallen world, God is boss. He's the one that designed it. He is the one that created it. And again, this is not a trivial thing, some of these observations, because the challenge before us, brethren, is very much, very clear, okay? We're either going to understand these particular principles from God's Word and we are going to become combative. That's one option, right? We can sort of get uh, fleshly with people in our culture who are going away from these things. We can get combative. And that's not always helpful, is it? I don't know if you've had those conversations where you say the right things, but you don't say them in the most loving fashion. Have you ever been there? I have. 
plenty of times. So it's not the most helpful, constructive way of approaching things. You may have the truth, right? And we do have the truth here. This is reality as defined by God, not by us. We do have the truth, not in an arrogant, proud way. But the way that we dispense the truth and we minister the truth to people needs to be in love. Amen? So we need to keep that in mind, okay? Don't become combative with regards to this particular principle here. Don't capitulate, right? Don't become combative. combative. Don't capitulate, meaning don't surrender ground because of the culture, because of man-made traditions. Why? Return to the principle, and I always do that. There's this reality that God is the one who instituted marriage. So no matter how much circumstances have passed, culture changes, people change, right? Kingdoms come, kingdoms go, nations fall, nations rise. God's word stands written. And that is true with regards to the marriage institution. God created it. Third, we can be combative, capitulate, or we can have and develop biblical convictions. And that is where we're at uh, in terms of doing this here. Right? We want to know what the Bible says, and we want to be able to present a compelling case based upon a conviction regarding the fact that marriage is a divinely created institution by God. Okay, So think about that. That's one implication of the text that we saw. Secondly, secondly, not only is marriage a divinely created institution, but marriage is complementarian. Complementarian. And I want to talk a little bit about this and what this means. Okay? It's the biblical teaching, and biblical teaching, by the way, that now some people make this argument, and we don't have the, the time to elaborate extensively on this, but where did the terminology complementarianism come from, right? It's a concept, yes, created over time by pastors and theologians and labeled complementarianism, right? But it's biblical. It's based upon principles of God's Word. So it's a biblical teaching, that men and women, as God's image bearers, right? Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. We saw that last week. He created them male and female in His image. That, God, that men, and, men and women, as God's image bearers, are ontologically equal. By ontology, we mean in their being, in their essence. That's what we mean. That they are ontologically equal, right? In who they are. But functionally, there's a difference, equality, but in their, function, in their function, functionally, they have distinct roles and responsibilities in various places, in, the home, in home life and in the church. Okay, see the, the distinction there. The, these are complementary roles, those of men and women. Okay, so there's this beautiful union between a man and a woman. God created man and woman. He created marriage. He created them equal but with different or complementary roles as they carry out God's singular purpose. And do you remember what that singular purpose was last week? To ours? Well, well, image bearer means really they're, they're relational creatures, right? Called to reproduce and to rule. Remember that? Called to reproduce, to multiply, be fruitful and multiply. That's reproduction and to rule. Man has been given the the wonderful privilege of being God's steward over His creation. And so think about those two aspects of complementarianism. There's equality, but there's different functions as far as roles and responsibilities, right? On the one hand, women are are equal. She too is an image bearer of God. We're going to expand upon this later on a little bit more, right? She possesses the same worth, 
the same value as a man. In fact, I'll just tell you, you know, just practically, and maybe some of you men can identify with this, there are, there are areas of life or gifts or abilities that my wife is far better than I'm in. Amen, brothers? Can you say the same thing about your wives? I mean, there are things that she can do much better than I can. So this issue of complementarianism, of equality, and yet difference in function or roles, has nothing to do with ability. It has nothing to do with any, any aspect of inferiority on the type of a female, right? And that is where so much, so much is muddied in our culture. People overreact, right? And all of a sudden, Paul was a chauvinist. And Moses, if he wrote the Pentateuch, he was a chauvinist too. And they forget about the fact that ultimately those men were writing the very things that God wanted them to write, right? But they react because they've seen abuses of authority in our society, right? Which are wrong and sinful and destructive, right? Men, we'll talk about this later on, but husbands have a delegated authority in the context of the home, just to use that example. Our authority is a delegated authority, meaning what? It isn't inherent in us. There's only one who has fullness of authority, and he is God, and he has given us delegated authority as husbands for the purpose of loving and shepherding and serving our families. When we go outside of that as men, and we, then we are abusing, abusing the authority that God has, has given us, and we have to repent before the Lord. Amen? Amen. So think about that. Right? There's this wonderful reality of, of difference in function, and our, and our culture reacts against that because of the abuses of authority. We understand that. On the other hand, they are different. So there's equality, but they are different by divine design. They complete or complement one another. And I don't have to convince you of that, right? As a husband or as a wife, you see the differences. My wife and I in so many ways are similar, but in other ways we are very different. And yet, as your, your marriage develops and as you mature, the more mature the marriage, the more that you learn to leverage each other's weaknesses and strengths for the good of the team, right? There's this functional oneness that you begin to develop. When you're dating or early on in your marriage, right, for most marriages, at least that I've counseled, um, the couple is duking it out because of their differences. He doesn't do this. She doesn't do that. But then as you begin to grow and you mature, it's like, you know what? I see her weakness. I see his weakness. And I have a strength in that area. And my desire by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit is to leverage my strength to to, um, uh, for his, to his weakness, right? So that we as a collective team, as one, are able to gl- glorify God in that particular area. You probably see that in your marriage. I always talk to married couples about that. Um, I call it the table of grace, right? That as you understand your equality and yet your differences that you have with each other, that when you communicate or you're trying to resolve a conflict with one another, you need to meet each other halfway, not in the worldly sense, like you meet me 50%, I'll meet you 50%, right? But the table of grace is if, if you're sitting down across from somebody and there's a pitcher of clean water, right, in the middle of the table, what are you going to do? You pick up that pitcher of water and if you're going to make the exchange with the other person, what do both people do? They're both leaning to make the exchange, right? That's what we do in our marriages, brethren. We understand that we're equal, yet we're different in function, right? In roles and responsibilities. And in terms of our conflict and our communication, we meet each other at the table of grace. We learn to lean forward so that we would leverage our strengths for the other's weaknesses and vice versa, right? So think about that. As you think about complementarianism, God knew exactly what he was doing. He didn't make a mistake, okay? So this is a, a um, labeling, right, of a concept that is a biblical concept, this issue of complementarianism, 
right? Opposites attract, and I don't have to tell you about that. And so we learn to leverage those beautiful differences to achieve a common purpose of glorifying God in our marriages. What's the opposing view? There's this view called egalitarianism, okay? Or the egalitarian view. It says that men and women are equal, and there's variations in all of these, as you guys know, okay? So, but fundamentally and basically, it's the view that men and women are equal. Therefore, there should be no distinction in terms of spiritual authority, whether in the context of the home or in the context of the church. There should be no distinction as far as what men and women are able to do, okay? And uh, that's egalitarianism. And in a sense, you kind of see the spirit of egalitarianism in liberal circles, and it infiltrates into the church, okay? In liberal circles, you see an egalitarian type of perspective in this general concept, right? Equality equals sameness. So if you truly have equality, men and women are equal, then the egalitarian, generally speaking, point of view says, well, then they should be able to do everything the same. There should be no distinctions as far as roles and responsibilities. Otherwise, there's no ontological equality in their being and in their essence. They're not really equal if they're not able to do the exact same things. That's kind of the spirit of the, of the age, right? And so you see this, for instance. I know that some of these are extreme examples. But men, now we have this whole situation of men wanting to have babies, right? And so they start changing their bodies and we start getting into some of these things to allow men to have babies and to get pregnant. Why? Because equality equals sameness, right? We see this even in, in other, other uh, contexts where women, for instance, now um, in sports, now you have, uh, or men rather, they want to they make sure that they are able to compete women on the same level uh, of men, as men, right? They should be able to do the exact same things as men, and if they're not able to be now in the NFL, right, tackling dudes, then all of a sudden now they're not equal. Women are not equal. And so that really erases and deletes the, the ontological equality that God beautifully created, but it ignores the fact that God has also created them to be different as far as their function or their responsibilities and roles. See? So we see these, there's so many examples of this, and obviously that infiltrates the church as well. Here's uh, Wayne Grudem. By the way, here are three books that if you guys want, you eager uh, readers, eager beaver readers and students, if you want to, some of the quotes, some of them, others I'll I'll, uh, make sure that I mention the the, um, particular book or source, but Rediscovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, A Response to Evangelical Feminism, okay, by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. This is a classic, came out, oh my goodness, first edition, I think came out in the 90s. So there's been another edition ever since. But this is so helpful, brethren, if you want to read more on some of these issues extensively. There's also this, this book that I recommended last week, God, Marriage, and Family, Rebuilding the Biblical Foundation by Andreas, with an S, Andreas J. Kostenberger. Okay, so I know that there's a new edition. I have the old, old edition written all over uh, with my notes. And then there's this book that some of you are probably familiar with, Different by Design by Pastor John MacArthur. So this is a great book, great resource as well, okay? There are other books that I'll be recommending as we go through this. But this is Wayne Grudem in Rediscovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Man and woman are equal in the sense that they bear God's image equally. They are equal but different by God's design. 
In the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, man bears the primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying direction. I like that, right? Equality, again, equality of being, but distinction of, of roles. All of this really underscores, brethren, why the, the sexual confusion that we see in our society is, is utterly sinful and rebellious against, against the Lord, right? It goes against His design. Why? Because our maleness and femaleness defines who we are and what role we are called to fulfill on this earth for the glory of God. And fulfilling our God-given roles within how God defines all those roles is ultimately not only what glorifies God, but what is good for us, right? In Romans chapter 1, we read about the, the present wrath of God and the consequences upon people who go away from God and how He defines things, and they redefine God and redefine moral standards. So when, but on the opposite side, when we are walking in God-glorifying obedience, then we are basically not only glorifying Him, but we are also doing what is best for one another. We are fleshing out His roles, and that is what is good for us as His, as his creatures, right? All right. So men and, e- and women have equal but complementary roles, okay? There are those who disagree with that in our society. Ultimately, you know what the answer is in love? You need to take it up with God. You need to take it up with the Lord, right? This is not a Campus Hernandez thing. This is not a EBC thing, Eastridge. This is not a, a conservative evangelical thing, these principles. This is about what God says in His Word, right? It's not an insult to women or a statement of their inferiority whatsoever. Women are just as gifted and able and capable as men, right? There's just a difference in function and roles, okay? I'll take your, your questions and cries of outrage later on, all right? At the end. Or not. Third. Third. What's another foundational principle derived from the text? Marriage is heterosexual and monogamous. Marriage is to be heterosexual and monogamous. Heterosexual obviously means that you are attracted to people of the opposite sex, right? That's what glorifies God. And monogamous, meaning that you are married to one person at a time, right? It is never one man and one it, it's always, marriage is always between one man and one woman. And nothing in the scriptures, right, exegetically as we dissect scripture and we see speak, scripture speak for itself, suggests that God intended for men to be with men or for women to be with men, women or to have multiple partners, right? We see that so much in our society today. God never condones or affirms fornication that is sex outside of marriage, homosexuality, relations with the same sex, Polygamy, marriage with multiple people, right? All of those things, sins, fall under this broad category of sexual porneia, of sexual immorality, which Galatians chapter 5, verse 21 says, uh, against those things, there is no, there's no forgiveness of sins for those who don't repent from those things. You cannot belong to the kingdom of God if you live perpetually in an unrepentant way in those particular things. But Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, right? Pretty clear. Some of this stuff is so self-evident and so straightforward, but it's amazing how we've gone away from this, right? And we twist it, and we sort of, sort of punt it off to culture, or it's a social construct that's been developed over time. 
Marriage is heterosexual and monogamous. Fourth, marriage is permanent. Marriage is permanent. This is another foundational principle, right? In verse 24 of Genesis 2, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There's this fusion or this gluing of two people together. Like I told you last week, we can look out right now and I see couples out there, right, who are married. And I see two people, two individuals. But really, before the Lord, because of the covenant that you made before the Lord, you are one, right? You are one. You are fused together inseparably and indestructibly. And so marriage is to be permanent according to God's design. You are now one flesh. Interestingly, about 1,500 years or so after Moses, right, penned this, Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, verse 6 says, you know, they are no longer two, but one flesh. That a husband and a wife are no longer two, but, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And if you know the context of Matthew chapter 19, right? Again, the religious leaders, over time, there are traditions that are developed. And they're coming to Jesus and they're basically asking him, hey, on what grounds can we divorce our wives? I mean, after all, Jesus, Moses even said, right? Let, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So Jesus cuts to the chase, gets to the heart of the matter, and basically exposes them and says, it was because of the hardness of your heart that Moses said that, right? And so basically he talks about provisions that got made through Moses because of, the, of a, living in a broken, fallen humanity. And I choose my words carefully, Right? The two grounds for divorce, right? Legitimate biblical grounds for divorce are unrepentant adultery and when a non-believer abandons a believer. Those are the two grounds for divorce. They are provisions made by God. They are not outs. They are not escapes. Why do I say that, brethren? Because in counseling over the years, there have been people who I have counseled and they're trying to get out of their particular marriage and they're basically looking at the provisions that God made because of a broken, fallen world. And they're essentially functioning as if those are escapes, right? As those, those are outs in an unfavorable marriage. And so that somehow also almost justifies their leaving their particular spouse, okay? But the Bible teaches that marriage is a binding covenant before God, right? Last week, somebody asked about the marriage ceremony traditionally and how that developed over time there are so many views on that and all of that some people even believe that within within uh, christian circles it was really during the reformation when some of those things were even more developed as far as the marriage ceremony you can talk about romans 13 and the governing authorities right how we are submitted to the governing authorities so therefore we're accountable to the state right to the government for those things we can talk about all of those traditions but ultimately at the end of the day it's a covenant before god right it's a covenant before him. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, you know, let your yes be yes and your no be no. So therefore, if you're making a promise, it means something. In our day and age, in our culture, you understand this, people's word means little to nothing. But when you're talking about a covenant of marriage before the Lord, it means everything. Like you actually stood before God at that marriage ceremony, at, in that auditorium or wherever, in that particular chapel, and there were people out there, yes, and that's significant as well. And certainly the state, the, the government and all of that has, has uh, authority over that, right? Limited authority over that or delegated authority. 
But ultimately, at the end of the day, it was before the Lord that you made that covenant promise. And so when you walk away from your marriage, that is the issue. It's a vertical breach of your relationship with the Lord because you made a promise. And that means something to the Lord. And that means something to your spouse. So think about that. Permanent, the permanence of marriage. I like what John Piper writes in one particular book, uh, This Momentary Marriage. If you, have, if you want to read a smaller readable book. It's a little bit philosophical, but very biblical, I think. John Piper, This Momentary Marriage. He says, marriage is not about remaining in love, okay? And if you read the context, he's essentially saying marriage is not primarily about remaining in love. It's about keeping covenant. Think about that. Marriage is not primarily about remaining in love. It's about keeping covenant. What does that mean? That marriage cannot be broken, right? It's for better or for worse. In sickness and in health till death do us part. It's for life. It's for life. That's the point. And that goes back to Genesis chapter 2. This is why, by the way, if, is Derek in here? Derek is a, a huge proponent, and I think, and champion. I've heard it said a number of times from your mouth, brother, about the early chapters of Genesis, right? That we need to stand firm on the, the opening 11 chapters of Genesis. The opening 11 chapters of Genesis, brethren, are foundational to our thinking. People say, well, if you don't believe in a literal six-day, 24-hour day creation, right, then is that a salvation issue? No, it's not a salvation issue. It's not. But if exegetically, right, and the etymology of the word yom for day and all of that means ages and something different, and if you're questioning the authority of God's word in the opening chapters of Genesis, where does it end? Right? Where does it end? You can't, it's a slippery slope for you, right? And so we have to be very, very careful. These principles are from the foundational chapters of the Word of God. And in God's providence, even in our Bibles, they stand at the, at the very front, right? Genesis, the book of origins. And so we cannot just dismiss it based upon cultural norms of our day, as if they're just social contra- constructs, some of these principles. Marriage is, is permanent, as a side note, this is why I always say to the kids and youth, and some of you singles out there, okay? Be careful who you choose. Marriage is for life. Right? Don't compromise. Right? Don't be unrealistic in your expectations of who you're going to marry and all of that. You're a sinner saved by grace. Uh, they, they need to be a sinner saved by grace as well, right? Growing sinner saved by grace. But don't compromise who you marry. Okay? You're not expecting a perfect person, but are they progressing towards sanctification? Are they growing? Because it's permanent, right? And once you get to that altar, right, at that auditorium or chapel, putting a ring on the, in the, on the finger of that particular person doesn't change their character. They don't, right? Right, right, brother? Really? I mean, you don't become a, a different person. You're marrying that person for who they are right? Obviously, if they're a believer, they're going to grow just like you're going to grow. Progressive sanctification, right? But listen, be careful who you marry. It's for life, okay? Be wise. You know, they say, Pastor Campus, I really want to get married. I really want to begin to date and all of that. Listen, be patient, right? I always say to the singles, be God's kind of man, be God's kind of woman so that you attract God's kind of man or God's kind of woman. Right? Be God. Right? Because the question is always, well, well what, what should be, my, what should be my, my non-negotiables? Right? What kind of a person? 
What are my core things? And then what are the, the secondary things that are my preferences? You know, those things are good to talk through and even seek biblical help for that from older godly couples and individuals. Sure, have that conversation with them. But at the end of the day, just recognize, right, that you're going to marry that person for who they are, right, with, with imperfections and sins. And they're not going to change just because there's a, some ceremony that takes place, okay? For the rest of us, don't buy into the culture, brethren, of unfaithfulness and a lack of commitment. Over the years in counseling, I get weary of people who complain that their, their spouse is not satisfying or fulfilling them enough, right? Listen to me. Your spouse was never meant or designed by God in a broken, fallen world to fully, completely satisfy you. <laughs> what? Are you kidding me? Right? By the way, husbands, don't say that right now. Amen to that, right? Because you, your wife will have a conversation. What, what, do you, what do you mean by that? What do you mean? Right? But can we be honest? Right? Some people have that perspective that I've counseled. It's like, well, they're not making me happy. They're not fulfilling me. It's like, well, tell me about that. You have a conversation, a fun one over time, right? That kind of mentality, right, is wrong. It's erroneous. It's sinful. Because your spouse was never designed in a broken, fallen world to fully, completely satisfy you. The only one who can do that is Christ. He's the only one that can do that. Right? John chapter 15, right? Abide in me and I in you. Apart from me, you can do what? Some things? You can do nothing. So we need to abide in Christ. Right? I love, I love, um, there's a lady that I know, and um, years and years ago had a, a pretty defining moment um, in her own uh, walk with the Lord and even in her marriage with that little prepositional phrase or phrase in, in Ephesians chapter 5 and 1 Peter chapter 3, as unto the Lord. As unto the Lord, ladies. Right? That your fulfillment and your satisfaction and the way that you flesh out your role in the context of your marriage and how you serve your husband and your kids, even if you are more empty nesters and all of that, and the way that you minister is as unto the Lord. Because your husband is not always going to fulfill you. Amen, brothers? Same thing for us as men. It's as unto the Lord. As unto the Lord. We're doing this for the glory of God. Sometimes it's hard to forget that, but that's going to guard us from when, we, when there are unmet expectations from our spouse. Things that we expect, even good things can become idols, right? You might, well, I really want him to love me. Good thing or bad thing? Good thing. I really want her to, to stop nagging at me. Good thing or bad thing? Good thing, right? But when you don't get it, <laughs> whoa, a lot of amens in this. Whoa, man, carry those into the second service, brother. <laughs> it's when you don't get those things that your heart is exposed, right? All of a sudden, those things become an idol for you. Your husband doesn't love you, treats you the way that he should. He's not being sweet. He's not listening the way that he should. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, I'm a, this, thing, this whole woman, woman submitting to her husband thing isn't working, right? I'm done with that. As unto the Lord. You step back. Wow, I need to live this before the Lord. This is not, God is not giving me instructions so that I could function like a utilitarian, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow his commands as long as it works and I get what I want from my husband. That, goes, that cuts both ways, right? Same thing for us as husbands. We don't love our wives so that, so that there could be sexual intimacy, right? And we'll talk about that later on in, in the next few weeks, right? Some husbands, it's like they're going to be kind and listen to their wives because they want something from that marriage in particular. 
We shouldn't function that way, brothers, right? So Christ is the only one who can satisfy us in our marriage. But we do live in that kind of utilitarian society. I'm tired of this sort of this mentality of I'm tired of this pair of shoes, this person, right? That pair looks better, so I'm going to go find somebody else. That's the way that we people function or they say, I've, I've fallen out of love. Have you ever heard that? I don't feel the same way anymore, right? We don't dismiss feelings or emotions or anything like that. We certainly, how many of you wives want your husband just to say, well, I'm in this marriage because I have to, but I'm going to serve you, right? How many of you ladies are satisfied with that kind of an attitude? No way, right? It's like, dude, what's the matter with you? You want there to be emotions. You want there to be affection and tenderness and all of that. Same thing for us as, as husbands, right? But some people are driven by emotionalism. And so when they don't feel certain things that they say that they felt before, it's like, well, then we must have fallen out of love. Well, love is an action, right? Love is the self-sacrificial giving of yourself for the good of another person, regardless of whether there's anything in it for you. The self-sacrificial giving of yourself for the good of another person. All right, enough of that. Marriage is permanent. Marriage is exclusive. Marriage is exclusive, right? Moses says in verse 24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, singular, right? Singular man, singular wife, and they shall become one flesh, singular, right? Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 doesn't condone polygamy. And some people ask, well, what about, what about as we're reading through the Old Testament, like already, right? How many of you have been doing your daily Bible reading? We're in Exodus chapter, let's see, quiz, quiz, what chapter? Yes, that's what I'm talking about, right? But already in the, in the book of Genesis, what have you noticed with the P word? A lot of polygamy, right? What's up with that? And Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 says that, right? Singular, one man, one woman in marriage, right? F- being fused together, being glued together into one. What's up with this polygamy thing? Well, a couple of things, right? Hermeneutical. Hermeneutics means the principles of Bible interpretation. Hermeneutically, understand this. There's a difference between prescriptive and descriptive in Scripture. Put on your lenses, right, as a, as a Bible interpreter. And when you go to Scripture, just like any other literature, we're not talking about some magical formula when you interpret Scripture, right? These are at face value the same principles. I was an English major, and I applied the same principles to the interpretation of literature and poetry and all of that that I apply to Scripture with the understanding that this is not just another book. Amen? This is Holy Scripture. So I need the illumination of the Spirit of God, right? So don't humanize it so much. But we also don't spiritualize it as if, well, this book is to be interpreted very differently. You know, it's all, you know, who cares about typical, normal, straightforward, grammatical, hermeneutical principles, right? No, same principles. And when I interpreted poetry and literature and all of that, there was a difference between prescriptive and descriptive. What is the difference? Descriptive is just telling you the facts of what's going on, right? This is what happened, right? Descriptive prescriptive is this is what happened go do likewise go do likewise and with regards to polygamy god never tells us go do likewise and in fact every example right from solomon to deuteronomy chapter 17 where we're told this that that any example any context where you find men or kings going after multiple women what happens good things 
Are they really thriving? No. You think God is telling us something about that? Yeah, right? There's a difference hermeneutically, brethren, with, with, um, between prescriptive and descriptive content. And so be very careful with that. Marriage is exclusive. One man, one woman, right, leaving his own family, that is obviously his own parents, and cleaving or being joined or fused, glued together to his own wife. They are now one flesh. There's a fusion of two lives into one, right? No one should have, an implication of this, no one should have then the same place that your spouse holds in your life. So many of these things we're going to elaborate later on. But in your attitude, in your heart affections, in your actions, if marriage is exclusive, right, between one man and one woman, in your heart there should be no one else who takes that place. No one. Oftentimes it isn't so much external, but it's an issue of the heart, right? Thinking, our affections, right? Our actions, all of those things should be devoted actions. We should all be, 1 Timothy chapter 3 tells elders that they must be one, one woman men, right? He must be a one woman man. That's literally what that means. Husband of one wife, literally a one woman man. That apl- and some people might say, well, that's only for elders. No, no, that's the standard of must be, right? But that's a standard for all Christians and for all of us as men. We need to be one woman men, right? That applies to you if you're single, right, by the way. If you're a single guy right now, young and older. Right now, this is applicable to you, that marriage is exclusive, means that you need to live that out right now in your life, right? So the things that you see, you you watch on screens, cultivate a heart of one, uh, devoted to that one woman in the future, right? Dating around, be careful with that, right? Having this utilitarian kind of mindset where you're dating multiple people and using them for your own selfish purposes. That is not being a one-woman man. Same thing for you ladies who are single. Same thing. That you're always careful because marriage, because of the exclusivity of marriage, you recognize that right now you need to flesh that out or you need to be devoted to that one man that God has for you if that's what he's called you to, right? To be married. So you flesh that out right now and not leading guys astray, Right? When you spend time with a, with a gentleman, a brother in the Lord, right? How do you conduct yourself? In purity, right? Same thing with you young men. You need to treat uh, sisters in the Lord uh, as sisters in all purity, Paul says to Timothy. Teach this, these principles to, the, to young men. That they are to treat their sisters in the Lord as just that, as family. Think about the implications of that for, for purity. All of these things, brethren, are implications of marriage being exclusive, Right? Again, because we don't wait until we, are, we get into that marriage covenant to begin to operate that way. We cultivate that kind of heart now as single people. And then when we're married, we continue with that kind of heart and we fight for it by the grace of God. Amen? All right. Marriage is exclusive. Man, time flies when you're having fun. Okay. Marriage is a blessing and a joy. Marriage is a blessing and a joy. Right? Verse 23, we saw this last week. You know, Adam's response when he wakes up to this beautiful woman in front of him that God has put in his life is all before sin, right? He doesn't say, this is now burden of my burden and pain of my pains, right? How many of your Bibles say that? What does it say? It's poetry, right? The sense is like, the sense there is, she is part of me, taken from me, for me. That's the sense of the poetry there, okay? For me, there's this gratitude. And I told you last week that in our moments when we're walking by the Spirit, brothers who are married like me, when we're walking by the Spirit of God and we are 
yielding to the Spirit's leading and to His Word, right? That's the attitude that we need to have towards our wives. So when we don't have a heart of gratitude and contentment in them, celebrating marriage, we need to repent of that from the heart. Amen? But the heart of, of Adam is, for me, he cherished and treasured this wonderful gift from God. They are now partners, not rivals or, or enemies. Later on, we'll look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, which... I think one view of that is that the grace of life is referring specifically to marriage. We'll talk about that a little bit, but Ephesians 5, think about this. Marriage is a blessing and a joy. You have the opportunity as a husband and as a wife, as a married couple, to show the world something of the glory of God as seen in, in Christ and the church. What a, what a privilege, right, brothers and sisters? What a privilege. And you who are single, think about that, Right? You, one of the, your great motivations for wanting to be married in the future is this. I want my marriage to reflect Jesus and his church, right? To be a reflection of, of his glory. So marriage is a blessing and, and a joy. And when marriage becomes a burden, brothers and sisters, we need to repent from the heart and confess that to the Lord. I think in all of this, we need to recognize that there's a, a battle of, of worldviews, right? There's this battle of worldviews. The Bible says a man and his wife in an exclusive covenant relationship. What does the world say? As many partners as possible, acting as if you're married, polygamy, essentially. The Bible says marriage is for life, faithfulness and permanence of marriage. The world says it's okay to commit adultery if you're not satisfied. It's okay to get a divorce when you're sick and tired of your spouse. Deferring worldviews. The Bible says the man and his wife will become one flesh in a heterosexual monogamous relationship. The world says homosexuality is acceptable. In fact, you not only need to support it, you need to promote it. Have you noticed? Don't just support it, promote it. Is there forgiveness for every sin, brethren? Yes. Always remember that. I think there's a sense in which homosexuality and and um, immorality in that particular category, it's, it's a downward spiraling kind of a sin, according to Romans 1. It is a sin, but it's a different kind of deeper kind of sin, okay? So make sure that you, you recognize that, according to Romans 1. However, is it the unpardonable sin? No, no. There's forgiveness at the foot of the cross, amen? The unpardonable sin, if you will, is this, unbelief. Rejecting Jesus. God's provision for the forgiveness of sins. That's the unpardonable sin, broadly speaking, right? There's forgiveness for every sin. And even as we come across brethren, as I've counseled individuals who have been redeemed and who still struggle with homosexual desires and things like that, but they're not giving in to those things, right? There's something about us, that being a place where people can come and share those struggles, just like any other sanctification issue, so that we can help them, amen? Come alongside of them. Help them become like Jesus, just like any other particular sin. But again, there's this battle of, of worldviews. We've created a, a mess in a society that has largely gone away from God's beautiful design. That's the problem, brethren. And the solution is to return to the Bible. And at the center of that is the beautiful gospel message. Amen? The good news concerning the person and the work of, of Jesus. Brethren, Jesus... And through his gospel, is about redeeming marriages. Do you believe that? God wants marriages to thrive. But that's not going to happen unless we submit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so i got to tell you, over the years, I never assume that in any environment where I teach or I preach, 
that everybody sitting in the auditorium or in the sanctuary or chapel is a believer. I just want to remind you, if you are not in Christ, if you know that you are not in the Lord, or even if you recognize, you know, I I think I'm deceived, I don't see any fruit, any affection, any desire for Jesus. Listen, having a thriving, growing marriage, whether in the present or in the future, is only going to happen unless it is based upon the rock of Jesus. Amen? Christ! Go to Ephesians chapter 5 and read that later on, right? Everything is, is centered on Christ. I don't know how people um, grow in their marriages and cultivate a godly marriage without Jesus. In fact, it's impossible. I don't know how Jesus do it, how people do it without Christ. May I tell them that? You know, where it begins is you need to commit your life to Christ. And so that's where, that's where our commitment needs to start, brothers and sisters. All right, questions? Questions? Yes, sir. The husband is the husband is verbally abusive or physically abusive? Verbally or physically? So you guys hear the question. The brother is saying he was invited to help out, right, with a situation where he's aware where the husband is verbally abusive. And so what do you do in that type of situation? You recommend a temporary separation? Did you say that? Okay. So that's the question. So it gets into a broader issue, right? And I wish you would have asked this 10 minutes ago because I want to elaborate on this a little bit. But So I'll do my best, okay? So let me say this. Stepping back a little bit. All abuse especially physical abuse, is absolutely serious before the Lord. I want to make that very seri- very clear. We should never diminish or ignore um, any cases where somebody is actually being accused or they're, they're communicating, I think I'm being abused. We should take that very seriously. Okay. And within that, I would say this. The church is obviously going to, if it's people in the church... Right? Are they in the church? Okay. So that's a, that's a tough one, right? Because then the issue comes back to, yes, temporary separation, but the gospel. Right? But if they're in the church, okay, then obviously we're going to spearhead efforts in the church to apply biblical principles to that situation. Having said that, Romans 13 exists. The laws of the land. Right? And for any man or woman, <laughs> I'll tell you what, there's been three cases over the years that I've counseled where, where women are beating on the guy. Okay? On the husband. But most cases, right, it's typically the husband doing that to the wife. We will subject that person to the authorities and the laws of the land. I think that um, if, unless things have changed, the, the state of Washington um, is one of, the, of two states that doesn't mandate pastors or reverends in the church to actually report abuse. Did you guys know about that? You know what I say to that? I don't care. 
I don't mean that proudly. I don't mean that arrogantly. I mean it. I, I think ultimately that's where the government has limits to their authority, right? So if in the, in the state of Washington, somebody is, is uh, beating on somebody else in the context of the church, I as a pastor, I'm not going to say, well, the state of Washington doesn't, doesn't, doesn't mandate me to do that. So, oh, well, you know, no, I'm going to subject that person to the laws of the land. Okay, that's what's going to happen in our church. And I'm sure that the elders agree, you know, with regards to that, because we've kicked this around a little bit. So abuse is serious, right? Obviously, brother, you understand this <clears throat> when you get um, in counseling, you have to. There's so many definitions of abuse today. Pendulum swings that we have to be very careful because there's a secular culture that is largely shaping now even that kind of terminology. So what does that mean? That in counseling, we take it serious, but clarity, clarity is a huge thing for me. I want to sit down in front of people and ask questions and hear their hearts and understand the dynamics and the history and specifics and examples and all of that as a pastor so that we get clarity, 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 and then confirmation. And if indeed somebody is doing that, obviously the laws of the land, right? There, there could be temporary separation. I do believe in that. Over the years, I've counseled people to temporary separation. Okay, um, the difficulty is this: is abuse, physical abuse. Let's put it in that category. Is physical abuse um, a man, is it mandated in Scripture that when there's physical abuse, that that is an out and that is divorce? Well, the Scripture is silent about that. So what does that tell us? That's a it's a wisdom issue, right? So we we take it serious, we get clarity, and we confirm. We subject somebody to the laws of the land. We begin to engage them as pastors in the context of the church, okay? But the laws of the land, somebody might wind up in the can in jail because of the fact that they're doing that, right? And so that might be a moot point at that point. And you know what? They need to answer to the Lord for those acts. They do, because God has established the laws of the land, Romans 13, to protect the innocent and to punish the evildoer, right? Obviously, we have a government these days that is doing the opposite, right? Way too much. But still, we look to those opportunities for the government to do their job, right? So then in counseling, we might, we might uh, let's say that they don't wind up, wind up in jail. We, we're going to get them separated. And now we engage both couples counseling and individual counseling. Okay? Until the Lord makes it absolutely clear and confirms through all of those steps that that couple, uh, something happens where they, can't, they cannot be together, we are going to take every step to practice, flesh out what Malachi says, I hate divorce. God says, I hate divorce. So my first in, um, response as a pastor, looking at the biblical data and what God says, is not, oh, adultery, abandonment, or potential abuse, divorce. That's not, I don't think that that should be our response. I think wisdom, sitting down, clarifying, confirmation, subjecting them to the laws of the land, counseling couples individually, engaging, putting their feet to the fire as far as the principles of God's word and the practices, right? Implications of God's word. Through all of those things, brother, we would engage. Yeah. Is that helpful? Now, your difficulty is, is that they're not in the church. I still think that the laws of the land, right? But the other part of it is, brother, the gospel. The gospel is about redeeming marriages, right? And ultimately, um, that's what Christ wants that marriage to thrive, right? If they're married, they should not be looking to get out in that situation. That should not be your first encouragement either. But temporary separation, absolutely, because you need to protect the person who is being abused. Absolutely. Yeah. It's 11.01. Why don't you come up to me after, sister? Okay, let me close this in prayer. Whew. And we can return to this particular question next week as well, okay? All right, let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your precious people.
for their teachability and humility, and for the clarity of your word. I pray that, Father, you would help us to be people of the book, people of your word who are not shaped by the culture around us, even as we, with regards to marriage, family, and some of these very critical issues, Father, that require so much of our compassion and mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.